if you were to come to our house and you wanted to get on our Wi-Fi signal, you would pull out your device and you'd look, uh, you know, the little indicator that indicates all the different networks and the different names, and I would think it would be fairly intuitive to know which one was ours, not just because it would have the strongest signal, but because we have named our network Smith Family Farm, and I chose that name because that's what my life feels like many times. feels like I live on a farm. Even though we have a house in the city, we live in a neighborhood, it definitely feels very farm-like on most days, and that's largely because we have not just five people that live under one roof, but we share that property and that housing area with 10 animals. 10 animals, y'all. Now, you've heard me talk about numerous different types of animals through these sermon illustrations over the years. We've got two dogs. You've heard me talk about the six chickens. I think it's still six chickens. Uh, and if you're good at math, which I assume you are, you're quickly calculating two plus six equals eight. He said 10. What are the other Two. Well, the other two are the focus of today's illustration and example. Uh, they come by way of my daughter, uh, her personal pets. Now, she had entered into uh, kind of the, the, I guess, the childhood milestone of owning a pet with hamsters. That was one of the first things that she did. And after two tragic, and I mean tragic, tragic losses, uh, she decided to kind of navigate to another arena of the rodent family and decided to become an owner of guinea pigs. And so this fall, she bought her first guinea pig, and then that quickly turned into a second guinea pig. She wanted to make sure that I told you all what she named them. Then the first one she named guinea, and the second one she named pig. So you can come to the Smith family farm at any point and come see guinea and pig in Annabelle's room. And when she got these creatures, she was all in, man. She loves her guinea pigs. And I mean, to the point that we were actually on a walk several weeks ago, and she started just telling me all of her plans and all of her dreams, and it started going to this level where she's like, and then I'll get a third guinea pig, and after that, a fourth guinea pig, and I had to interject and say, sweetie, it stops at two, and, and like, I'm sorry, I'm going to put my foot down. Ten animals is enough in this house. I'm not letting you go beyond two, and she was like visibly frustrated with me that I wouldn't allow her to have more than two guinea pigs, and I'm like, we've got ten animals. You're doing fine, but that's how much she loves them. And so as her obsession with guinea pigs began to settle in, it introduced me and the rest of the family to this whole subculture of guinea pig fandom that I didn't realize existed in our society. But you can pretty much purchase anything with guinea pigs on them, right? You can get bedding and sheets and blankets and pillows and laundry baskets and shirts and books. I mean, there are nonstop guinea pig-themed products that exist out there. And so not only did we get introduced to all those things, but uh, it's the accessories that are available for guinea pigs as well. I thought it would be obviously a cage and a water bottle and a little food bowl or something along those lines, but there's so much more. There, there are toys you can give them. There's special treats you can give them. They have guinea pig clothing, right? Like seriously, we, we own little guinea pig hats, little guinea pig shirts and things like that because my daughter became so fixated on the accessories. This became a main focal point for her Christmas list. I want guinea pig stuff. And so she got guinea pig stuff. Now, as she got so interested in all these accessories, the one that she really got the most excited about early on uh, that was really interesting to me, I'll never forget, it, is the day she came to me and she said, Dad, guess what? Today I ordered a guinea pig leash. Now, when she said that, my brain short-circuited for a little bit. 
because of all these successive thoughts that I couldn't comprehend when she said guinea pig leash. Number one was that it even existed. Right? I just couldn't even believe and couldn't even really fathom that you could actually find a guinea pig leash, which led to the second thought, not only do they exist, but people are actually manufacturing them and selling them for a profit on Amazon, which was equally confusing to me, which led to the third thought, which was not only are they being sold, but people are buying guinea pig leashes so that you can sell them on Amazon, which led to the most disturbing thought of all, which was those people were me and my family. We're the ones buying the guinea pig leashes. And so she was so excited because she had literally convinced herself, she had painted this picture in her mind that she was so excited to get this leash and be able to walk her guinea pig like everywhere, around the neighborhood, around the house, and she could not wait for that moment to arrive. So every day she'd come home, look in the mailbox, waiting for that package to ultimately be delivered. And then one day it shows up, and so she gets it with this excitement. She runs into her room, she shuts the door, and after about five to ten minutes, she comes out with some disappointment. Dad, it didn't work, Um, but I think we ordered the wrong size. Mom and I looked at it already. They had two different size options. We think we ordered the larger one. We're going to order the small one. So the other one's already on its way. I'm like, all right, so we're buying a second guinea pig leash here. And so the same cycle unfolded where she came home every day anxiously looking in the mailbox, eager for it to arrive with all this bated breath and anticipation. And then one day it finally shows up. With that enthusiasm, she grabs it. She runs into her room, closes the door. And after about five to ten minutes, I walk by and I hear another level of disappointment. So I walk into her room and, y'all, I'm dead serious, like tears are starting to fill her eyes. She's like, Dad, it just won't work. Now, no, no father loves to see his daughter like that. And so I try to channel inner, like, super dad momentum here. And I'm like, all right, sweetie, well, let me see the leash. Let me see if I can make this work. And so, y'all, I get down on the floor. I'm holding this little leash and this little guinea pig. And I'm trying to, like, harness it over its head and its little arms and all these little things. And it just doesn't work. I'm sorry, you cannot harness a guinea pig, if you were wondering, it's not possible. And so the thing continued to just maneuver out of the harness, and with every failed attempt, my daughter got more and more frustrated and almost angry as I heard her pacing back and forth behind me in the room as she was going, this stuff is junk, this is terrible, why would we buy this stuff, who would sell these things that don't work? And I was realizing as she was processing, obviously she was coming to grips with that age-old adage of buyer beware, uh, but also something a little bit more profound, right? What she, had, what she had expected, what she had envisioned, this idea of being able to walk these guinea pigs around on these leashes was essentially a promise, right? If you tell me when I look online and I can see these pictures that I'm going to be able to do this with your product, then I expect it to deliver. And the fact that it's not feels like a broken promise. And that was the disappointment that she was really feeling, And I have no idea if when she gets older, she'll look back on that moment with any degree of recollection and clarity. But I hope that if she does and she thinks back about that disappointment with a broken promise, she'll remember that her dad was with her through it all, trying to help her navigate those emotions. But the reality is, is I share that as a story because every single one of us understands that feeling of disappointment that comes with broken promises or unmet expectations. It's one thing when it's a product, right? That's a certain level of frustration. That's a certain level of of, uh, unhappiness. 
But when it begins to progress to something more personal, right, and it's a friend that broke a promise, it's a loved one that broke a promise, well, those wounds cut a little deeper. And that disappointment a little bit more difficult to navigate. But perhaps the greatest challenge of all is when we feel like those broken promises or those unmet expectations that we encounter in life don't just come from other people but come from God. How do we handle that feeling? Those moments where it feels like God has forgotten us, overlooked us, or not lived up to what we expected to find by following him. That's a much different and deeper level of disappointment that our heart has to wrestle with. And so my hope today is for us to refocus on the promises of God, to better understand them, to see where it is that our heart can sometimes get misaligned that leads to that level of disappointment, and hopefully that through our course of our conversation today, we can get some clarity, we can get some opportunities to better understand what his promises really are, and through it all, never lose sight of the fact that no matter what season of disappointment we may endure, we can always remember that he's always with us. And so that'll be the whole point of our message today. Grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1 as we explore this together. Uh, Last week we looked at just the first verse of chapter 1 as we introduced this letter. And last week was an opportunity to give consideration to the authorship of this letter to the church in Rome. Uh, The opening word is Paul. And so we took a, 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 a... I can do it. We took... A good amount of time, there it is, to talk about Paul and his story. In particular, his conversion experience of going from Saul to Paul. When we were introduced to Saul in Acts chapter 7, we see one who is standing in approval over an execution of of a believer. We see someone who is the central figure of trying to destroy the church. We see somebody who in particular was breathing out murderous threats against those who belonged to the way. And all of a sudden, he has this dramatic encounter on the road to Damascus, and everything changes. He's transformed, right? And and we see this transformation lead to now somebody that changes from Saul to Paul and begins to immediately go and preach that Jesus is the Son of God. It's an amazing transformation. It's, It's a picture of a renewed life just like Naomi, just like Ruth, who we've recently been talking about. This has been the theme for our year. What does it mean to live as God's renewed people? What does it mean to find that renewed life? When we first introduced this subject by looking at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, we extracted from those two verses that three dominant characteristics of the renewed life is devotion, discernment, and delight. All the things that we see taking place in Paul's life. A new devotion to Jesus, a discernment to understand what his purpose was, what his calling was, and then an opportunity to delight in that purpose. And those were things that were very beautifully articulated in this opening verse that we looked at last week when Paul identifies and declares who he is with this transformed life, specifically his identity in Christ. It's not just that he's the author of the letter, but he sees himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle to the, God, uh, to the Gentiles, and then set apart for the gospel of God. Right? And so those three distinctive markers that we looked at last week serve as a template for each and every one of us. Right? That when we find our identity in Christ and we also experience this renewed life, that we're able to demonstrate what it means to be a servant to Jesus, understanding our calling in our lives, and to be set apart for the gospel. And so those were the things that we looked at last week that helped us get a, an introduction to this letter. Today we move beyond the question of authorship and also consider who is it that's receiving this letter. 
And as we try to answer that question, it will also give us an opportunity to explore how we handle and better understand the promises of God. And so let's continue along, uh, following after verse 1 and reading verses 2 through 6. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. All right, so these five verses, verses two through six, uh, give us a good understanding of who's receiving this particular letter. Now, if you look closely, verses two through four are really focused on giving a greater explanation of the gospel of God that is mentioned in verse one, right? He says, set apart for the gospel of God, and then the next few verses, next three verses, he's describing some details of that gospel. And then when he gets to verses five and six, we get a a greater indicator of the recipients of this letter. And so the first thing I want to do before we really give consideration to who's receiving the letter is at least looking at some of these descriptions of this gospel that we find mentioned in verses 2, 3, and 4. All right, so the first thing that you see referenced there is that this is the gospel that was promised beforehand. All right, and this is a great statement for you and me to, to always go back to and to try to anchor ourselves on, is to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of God, was one that was promised This is what God said he would do. This is a way that we understand the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God, the reliability of God, because he made a promise and he is faithful to his promises. But specifically what Paul is pointing out is that this was a promise that was made beforehand. This is not plan B. This is not God saying, oh, goodness, man, it it messed up. The Israelites, they they rebelled and all these things fell apart, so I've got to come up with a new plan. This this was the plan from the beginning, right? This was his promise beforehand according to the prophets and the Holy Scriptures, right? And so he references the prophets and the Holy Scriptures because he's trying to make that argument that this is the plan from the very beginning. Now, when you look at any sort of reference in the New Testament to the Holy Scriptures, you got to keep in mind as you read that that that's not referring to the New Testament, right? Because when the church in Rome receives this letter, they have no New Testament that hadn't formed yet. And so references to the Holy Scriptures are obviously to the Old Testament. And so Paul is trying to make his argument in his case that this gospel that was promised and fulfilled in Jesus is something that you can see in the Scriptures in the Old Testament and the prophets. This is how you know that it was promised beforehand. Now, the reason I'm calling that to your attention is because what Paul is doing here is setting the tone for what you're going to see and encounter throughout the rest of this letter. Numerous references where he draws back to what the prophet said, where he builds upon what we see in the Old Testament, because what he's trying to to argue is that this is something that has always been in place. So one of those promises he actually refers to uh, here in these first few verses, that according to his earthly life, Jesus was a descendant of David, of the line of David, of the seed of David. We all know, if you study the scriptures with any great detail, that the Messiah that was intended to come to Israel was to come from David's line. So Paul's drawing upon that. This is one of the promises that were fulfilled. He was from the line of David. And so we see that he's building upon that. But what's interesting is that as he 
kind of continues to explain it. He compliments that statement, who then says, but through the spirit of holiness was what declared to be the son of God in power. And so it's not just that he was from the line of David. A lot of people were from the line of David. But as he stepped into uh, this role of being a savior and Messiah, he was also declared to be the son of God in power. Now what, what Paul is probably trying to articulate there is a pretty significant statement that he's about to lead into which is the idea that this was not, Jesus was not just Israel's Messiah. Right? He, he was bigger than just some savior for, for the people of Israel. He was the son of God. This plan of salvation, this plan of Messiahship was not intended for just one subset of people. It was intended for all people. He was the son of God in power. And, and what's really beautiful about that is Paul continues to provide just these uh, little summarizations of the Gospels. He says, and this is affirmed, by his resurrection from the dead. Right? By the resurrection from the dead. And so part of what he's revealing here and part of what we discover uh, as we encounter the good news of Jesus is that, that God's plan was so much bigger than to just redeem a people from captivity on earth. Right? It, it was so much more than just I'm coming to set Israel free from captivity and establishing a new earthly kingdom. The Messiah he was sending was the Son of God who was coming to set humanity free from sin and death. And the resurrection affirms that that was the issue he was trying to address. He wasn't trying to address Rome or the threat of foreign powers. He was trying to address the problem of sin and death and defeated that problem through the resurrection. That was the plan. That was the plan all along, and now it's fully revealed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the other thing that's interesting about that phrase that you can uh, kind of evaluate and consider is that when Paul references the resurrection here, he doesn't reference it with a particular specificity to Jesus, right? He's not saying by his resurrection from his death. It, it reads almost as if uh, Paul is referring to a more general resurrection, Right? The resurrection that was believed to occur before the last judgment. And so this is important. Right? This is especially important to understanding not just the recipients, but the motivation of Paul and his authorship and his whole ministry. Right? Part of what they felt was with Jesus' resurrection, that the general resurrection for all people before the last judgment was rapidly approaching. This Jesus has just been resurrected from the grave. He's risen from the tomb. The resurrection is upon us. And with that created a tremendous sense of urgency. The time is now. The resurrection and the kingdom of God is near. And that's what is contributing to Paul's motivation, his passion, his purpose, the urgency with which he is trying to share this gospel with everyone who needs to hear it. Which leads me to a question, what sort of urgency do you carry with this gospel message? Right, what sort of urgency do we carry as a church? Right, do we have that same sort of belief and understanding that the resurrection and the kingdom of God is upon us? There's no doubt that Paul in the early church had that sense of urgency. And so Paul's motivation, as revealed in, in God's declaration to Ananias at the conversion experience when he tells Ananias, this man is going to be my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Paul is pursuing that call 
and motivated to take this gospel to Rome and to eventually Spain, as he reveals in his, later in his letter, is because he believes the resurrection is near. So he's doing everything he can for everyone to hear. And that leads to a specific focus on the Gentiles, which is what he references next, right? This is why we've been called to proclaim this message to the Gentiles, that they may also have obedience and faith in Jesus Christ, right? He, he references the Gentiles, and that's what gives us our first clue and indicator to who's receiving this letter. So here's what we know about the church in Rome at this point in history. We know that a church had started, uh, but we don't know exactly how. There, there's not a lot of clarity within the scriptures in terms of the origins of the church in Rome, but we know that it existed and because of just the, the way that the early church began at this point in time in history, we know that a lot of times uh, those churches and that movement occurred within the synagogues with the Jews, right? Uh, other God worshipers, uh, other people who saw themselves as proselytes to Judaism and were now encountering this new truth. And it all makes sense. I mean, Paul was, was a Jew who often went and consistently taught in synagogues. You, you have Jesus it was a Jew, so you had this natural evolution where Jews and Gentiles, especially new Gentile believers, would, would come to the synagogue and eventually get in, have an opportunity to encounter this gospel. So there was great proximity with Jews and Gentiles in the early part of the church. And for the first several decades, they coexisted fairly well. But by the time that Paul is writing this letter, which we estimate to be around 50, 60 AD, those, those fifth, that fifth decade or so, tensions between Jews and Gentiles were escalating, right? To the point that there was division, uh, there was a, a, a segregation almost that was taking place. They didn't know how to coexist because there were such cultural differences between the two. And so a tremendous focal point of the letter to Rome is to speak to that tension and that division, right? To, to call the church to find a greater unity, not in their cultural and ethnic identity, but in Jesus. And so one of the ways he does this, and something else that we're going to be able to encounter as we go throughout this series, is he, he pays particular attention to the law and understanding the way that the law should be interpreted and understood, Right, that becomes a common theme with what Paul focuses on within this letter. And part of what Paul is going to try to argue throughout the course of the letter is that through, through the centuries, uh, the Jews' understanding of the law had become more ethnocentric. Right? It, had, it had been applied to the ethnic Israel that defined itself based on religious festivals and, and customs and circumcision and all these key markers that made them distinctly and ethnically Israel. And so part of what he's going to try to address are some of those beliefs, some of those mindsets to loosen their grip on it so that they can see that the law and the promises that are found within the law were not constrained just to them but were more accessible for everyone. Right? And so he's going to try to focus in on that to alleviate that tension. In, in many respects, part of what you see when you read through the letter to the church in Rome is the challenge against racism, ethnocentrism, right? So many of these things that can plague humanity, these dividing walls of hostility that uh, we see in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul's going to combat those things. And so when you merge his calling to the Gentiles and this urgency and the focus with which he's trying to get them to see that, 
that this is for more than just themselves, more than just the Jews and combating this kind of ethnocentric mindset, we see that one of the most beautiful things that Paul embodies and that we can observe from this letter is this lesson that the gospel is not meant to be hoarded, it's meant to be given away. It's not just for one particular person or people, it's for all. And that's a a great reminder for us even today because we encounter those same tendencies, We, we encounter those same impulses to kind of segment and segregate and, and, and live according to biases and prejudices and all these different things, then ultimately, if we're not careful, we can begin to curate a life where we're ultimately just hoarding the gospel rather than sharing it. And if you're wondering where you might fall in that, one question I would encourage you to ask is, who are you sharing it with? Who are you trying to give this gospel to? And if we can't answer that question, then there's a good chance that, man, we've fallen into this trap, even just subconsciously, we're, we're, we're hoarding it. It's just for us. And so Paul is combating that mindset. He's, he's approaching that tension, and he's trying to get them to loosen their grip on the understanding of what this gospel was and what God's promises actually were, what was actually written in the scriptures, that this wasn't a plan B, this wasn't a deviation from God's intent, this is what he had intended the whole time. And so the way that Paul does that throughout the scriptures is he'll go back to these Old Testament references in the letters to the Romans, and in particular, he continually focuses on this idea of the Gentiles and God's heart for the Gentiles. I believe I came across in my studies that the word Gentiles is referenced 23 times in this letter to the Romans. Uh, nine of which speak to uh, Old Testament references, and, and you see a good concentration of these in Romans 15. I didn't ask us to put it on the screen. If you want to flip a few pages over, you can, but this serves as a great example of how Paul tries to use the Holy Scriptures and the words of the prophets to give them a better understanding of God's original promises and how he had a heart for the Gentiles all along. Now, one thing I will preface before we read through just a few of those verses in Romans 15 is that if you were to kind of build on this idea and search this on your own, you could go as far back to the call of Abraham, right? When God calls Abram and says, I'm going to send you to a new land, you are going to become a great nation, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So the very first covenant with Abraham we see God's heart for the nations. That his intent for that covenant, for that plan, was for all peoples to be blessed. Right? So you could start as early as that. Paul draws upon several different scriptures. We're gonna, I'm just going to quickly reference verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 in chapter 15. But here's what he's doing. He's quoting Old Testament scriptures. Uh, in verse 9, he's referencing Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 that says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Romans 15, 11, he quotes Psalm 117. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Romans 15, 12. And again, Isaiah says, now quoting Isaiah, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations in him 
the Gentiles will have hope. That's a good litmus test, a good example of what Paul is trying to do throughout the course of this letter in addressing the Gentiles that are there in Rome and addressing the Jews that are alongside them to say, this has been God's plan over and over again. You can see it in the Psalms. You can see it in Deuteronomy. You can see it in 2 Samuel. You can see it in Isaiah. God has always had a heart for the Gentiles, and that heart is now fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is revealing this purpose, and perhaps one of my favorite elements to this that we find in verse 6, as he says, and references this call to the Gentiles, he says, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I love that. And I love it, because there's a certain specificity there. It feels more pastoral. And I'm not just, I'm not just talking about Gentiles generically. I'm talking about you, he says. You and the church in Rome. And I realize that he's referencing a very specific people at a very particular time in church history. But every time I read that, I can't help but personalize it. And I'd encourage you to personalize it a little bit this morning as well. Right? That when we think about God's plan and his purpose for the Gentiles and the way that that was pursued, it wasn't just for some distant people of some distant part of ancient history. It was for you. God's plan includes you. His purposes, his heart, his love had you in mind. Now, we're not the center of that plan, but we are absolutely a part of it. And so when we think about those moments where perhaps it feels like we're forgotten or neglected or, or we've missed it or we've, we've misunderstood it, we have an opportunity to be reminded and encouraged that when we see God's heart for the Gentiles consistently put on display throughout the scripture, it includes you. God's plan and his purposes from the very beginning included you and me. What a gospel. What a powerful message to behold. And yet, here's my question. It's one thing to stand up here and read a few verses, talk about the Gentiles in Old Testament, and try to encourage you and say, see that? You're a part of his plan. You're a part of his promise. That promise was for you. But I know of all the different days and all the different seasons when we walk out those doors and we stop singing and we stop praying and we're not in the word where we have all these different moments where it feels like anything but the truth. Those moments where these promises, they feel either broken or unkept. We feel forgotten, we feel neglected, we misunderstand, and it completely challenges our understanding of God, our understanding of our relationship with Him. Have you ever had those moments where it felt like God's promises were not honored or, or they felt broken? I'll share you a personal story in my life where I really struggled with that. <clears throat> I've mentioned this on a couple of occasions, um, but when Jennifer and I were a couple years into our marriage and we decided we wanted to start a family, uh, I've told you all before that, that that didn't come easily for us. And, and that was a really difficult thing to come to grips with uh, because it was something we desired, right? It was something we wanted. It was something we would pray for. And yet time and time again, uh, we would be met with heartache and disappointment. And it was difficult because in many ways it felt like God was perhaps being uncaring or, un or cruel or he had forgotten about us. And, 
And it was really difficult to understand because we would pray to have a family, we'd pray to have a child, and I'd be sitting there and I'd be thinking, you know, it's not like I'm asking for a million dollars in a Lamborghini, God. Like, I just want a child. And I, I knew, like, I mean, we'd gone to doctors, there was no explanation as to why we couldn't have children, which made it feel even a little bit more cruel because there was no reason for it, and, and we would pray and we would ask, and I was like, I know that you could do it like that if you wanted you won't. So I got angry at God. I got like very angry at God as I wrestled with that sort of disappointment. And part of what I began to wrestle with was even just my own understanding of, of what I felt like he had promised me or what I felt like was expected in life. It took me back to even just considering the words of Genesis where he says, fill the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. And these assumptions that I had had in my mind my whole life that, yes, I would get to be a father. I just had instinctively assumed that. Right? That was inevitable, wasn't it? Isn't that owed to me based on how we were created? And then all of a sudden I encountered the season where maybe that was being denied and that was gut-wrenching. It distorted my understanding of God and his promises. And I guess what I really had to come to grips with as I wrestled with that personally was to face the reality that that was not, in fact, a promise that God had ever made to me. Nothing in Scripture that assures me that I get to be a father. Yet that was my assumption. And that was the source of so much of my heartache and pain and frustration. But as I wrestled with that and I came to grips with it and came to peace with it. I remember the way it shaped me and molded me. I remember conversations with Jennifer where I said, even if we don't get to have our own biological children and he calls us to adopt, man, we will carry that banner high and bring glory to him. But it took time to get to that point through a lot of disappointment and through a lot of anger. And I use that as an example because that's often what happens. Right? What will happen is the world will do everything it can to distort and confuse and warp our senses of the promises of God. Right? It, it'll get us to, to redirect our thoughts and create certain assumptions of things that we feel like God owes us or that we should naturally expect. And then we consistently are reminded with the fact that the world cannot honor its promises. And so we need to guard against that sort of confusion. We need to guard against those things that can distort our understanding of what it is that God has actually promised us. And that's kind of what I want to address a little bit this morning. What are those things that can so naturally distort our understanding of God's promises and confuse us in a way that alters our relationship and makes it more difficult to navigate that sense of disappointment in our lives? One of the things that I think can significantly contribute to our own view of God, perhaps not from our perspective, honoring his promises or, or feeling like they've been unmet or, or not meeting our expectations, comes from a, a distorted sense of timing. I think we can all agree that we want things in our time. And God's timing is very different. Right? Second Peter tells us, uh, do not think that God is slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. And isn't that something we fall victim to? 
right? That part of the source of that, that frustration, part of the source of that disappointment is we expect God to do something now when we want it and not necessarily according to his timing. And, and we'll read the scriptures and we'll see these beautiful declarations and, and opportunities to anticipate uh, healing and restoration and redemption and joy. And then we'll go through life and inevitably encounter all these different things where it feels like those things are just incredibly distant and unrealistic. Where's the healing, God, we'll say. Where's the joy? Where's the purpose? Where's the significance? And it may not be that he hasn't kept his promise. It may just be that he's saying, not yet. Right, like the, the healing from cancer may not happen until the new heaven and the new earth. The fullness of joy that we desire may not happen until he wipes every tear from our eyes. There's no guarantee that some of the things we see referenced in scriptures are gonna take place on this side of eternity. We have to trust in his timing. We have to model that sense of patience. I'll never forget, what was it, two and a half years later when we finally were able to celebrate that our family was going to grow. The first thing I thought was, God, I wouldn't change a thing. As hard as that has been, as difficult as a journey as that was, I wouldn't change it because of what you've done to me in here. Your timing was perfect. You gotta trust in the timing of God more than your own when you're anticipating his promises. But perhaps the greater culprit for us that can create that disappointment is I don't know that we really understand what his promises are at times. As I shared in my own personal story, I was operating with a certain assumption of what I felt like God owed me or what was just gonna be an inevitable part of my life that is not really a promise of scripture. The Jews had more or less moved in a similar frame of mind, right? They had developed a certain ethnocentric understanding of what the Messiah was going to do and had missed repeatedly in the scriptures God's heart for the Gentiles. They misunderstood what the promises were. And so that's a question we need to continually come back to. What is it that God has actually promised us? What are the promises of God that you are trusting in and resting in this morning? If you feel like he's forgotten you or you're neglected or he's distant or uncaring, why? What is it that you actually desire and want? Are those things revealed in scripture? And that's how I wanna close our time this morning is to take just a few moments and remind ourselves of what he has promised us. And the way I want to do this, it's, it's not exhaustive. It's not like I've retraced every element of Scripture and we're going to review every promise that we find there. What I decided to do is I went back and just looked through the Gospel of Matthew and extracted a few of these themes that you see. Didn't grab every single reference uh, for every single promise, but several uh, themes of the promises that Jesus points to. And I want to review these scriptures, and I want to do it from this vantage point, because I don't want to go back and do what Paul does in Romans and look at Old Testament scriptures that validate the, the coming of the Messiah and that Jesus fulfills those. We're going we're gonna to move under the assumption that you and I all know that. We trust that Jesus has fulfilled those prophecies and those scriptures. The promises that we're holding on to are the promises that Jesus offered us for our life. 
and the life that is to come. And so I just want to review some of these things. I just want to remind us this morning, what are those promises that we find in Christ that we can cling to and that we can hold on to this morning? And I hope is that, my hope is that as we review this together, it encourages you, strengthens you, and ministers to you on some level. So here are a few. God promises provision. So if you find yourself in need, if you find yourself longing for something, evaluate what those needs are. Evaluate what it is that you're truly desiring and then anchor it with a greater understanding of what Scripture teaches in terms of God's provision. He doesn't guarantee a provision of excess or luxury, but he does tell us time and time again he knows what your needs are. You need to trust that. What he says your needs are. Not what we say. And he tells us that he will provide for them. Matthew 6. Seek first his kingdom. All these things will be given to you. Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Our God is a provider. He gives you purpose. It's another promise for those who decide to follow him. He gives you meaning, he gives you significance, he gives you clarity of what to do with your life. When he invites the disciples to come and follow me, he tells them, I will send you out to fish among people. If you're confused and disillusioned with what you should do with your life, where do you find meaning, where do you find significance? Jesus promises you, for those who follow him, there will be purpose. He also promises a word of warning. He says, many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. It's a reminder of how we need to be on guard against the voices that we hear that might be intending to deceive that many things in this life will come proclaiming to provide the sort of salvation and depth and purpose that we desire that is outside of the plan of God and outside of what we find in Christ. He promises those deceptions and those voices will come. We must be ready to understand them. He promises a day of judgment. Matthew 12, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Later in Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. If we think that we can presume upon his grace, if we think we can presume upon his mercy, and that all of this is easy and without cost, we neglect the promise that there will be a day of judgment. And it is worthy of us counting that cost and giving our whole lives. And as serious as that needs to be considered, and the weight with which that needs to be taken, we must not look past the promises of forgiveness, the promises of salvation that will be with us on that day of judgment. When he speaks to those that he is healing, like in Matthew 
chapter 9, he says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And he speaks of salvation. When we think about what it'll be like on that day that we stand before the throne room of God, on that day of judgment, we remember that this gospel tells us that he takes all of our sin and gives us all of his righteousness. And it is the righteousness of Christ that will defend us. Matthew 13 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 16 says, Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He promises salvation and forgiveness. He promises blessing and reward. But listen who receives these blessings. And listen to the nature of the reward. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. He speaks to the promise of his Father's glory, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Blessing and reward. Beautifully stated again in Matthew 19. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones. He's referring to the disciples there. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. He's promised blessing, he's promised reward, he's promised everlasting life. And as beautiful as that hope is, what do we do in the waiting? What do we do in the longing? What do we do when we grow weary? Matthew 11 says, well, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He promises his rest. And the last one that I'll offer this morning, uh, easily my favorite, is that when we know we have to endure the waiting and we have to endure some of these challenges and these disappointments and we long for that rest, we can see continually that he's promised his presence. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And my favorite, as he sends this out to the nations, once again revealing his heart for all peoples, giving us purpose and meaning and infusing us with that sort of focus. Go and make disciples, he says, for I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's promised you his presence. The beautiful thing about promises is that they help us understand that someone is trustworthy, faithful, reliable. I don't know where you are in life. I don't know what season you're in, but I assure you that there will be those seasons where you will question and feel as if those promises have been broken or unkept, and you'll be dealing with that disappointment. And when you enter into those seasons, I would encourage you to return 
to the scriptures. Submit to his timing. Remind yourself of what it is he has actually promised you. And take heart in knowing that there, even in the disappointment, while you're longing for salvation and you're longing for the blessing and you're longing for the reward and you're longing for the rest, your God is with you. And that promise is enough to carry us from this life into eternity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being a God of promises, being a God who is faithful. Father, for being a God that helps us see more clearly the things that you assure your people. We confess, God, the numerous times that we get those promises confused and distorted and the disappointment that can often follow, that we can often carry. And God, help us once again be tethered to your timing rather than our own. Help us to think more clearly according to your scripture rather than just our own ambitions and thoughts and dreams. And as we consider all that you have done, we consider the work of your hands and the beauty of your plan, may we once again see that you are faithful. And as a result, God, may we declare to you and to one another this morning that when it comes to where we will place our trust and place our hope, we will put our trust in Christ and in Christ alone. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in your precious, beautiful, and holy name. Amen and amen.